And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. And we have about four Bible readings tonight that we'll work our way through. The passage, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount we're coming to, is about divorce. And it's a huge topic. And I thought even tonight it might be worthwhile. I didn't bring my mobile phone, so I can't do exactly what I wanted to do. But if you have a question at the end, so we go through the material and we'll come to some conclusions. Um, If you've got a question, um, we'll just open it up for for clarification or qualifying something and if there's two or three questions that's great then we'll answer them on the spot Uh, and if you're at home then you would have had the opportunity if I had my phone to send a text in and we could answer it that way you can still send the text you can send it to an email in fact you could send it to Pastor Charlie and he could maybe pass that on for tonight we'll see how that goes you may not have any questions because the talk might be so clear that every every ambiguity will be clarified Uh, let's wait and see Matthew chapter 19 is an amplification of the issue that Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount. And it adds background to help us understand that in the passage in the Sermon on the Mount more clearly. Matthew 19 verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one, one flesh. So they're no longer two, they're one flesh, one family. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if that's the situation between a husband and a wife, then it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, yep. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who have been born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The one who can accept this should accept it. That's God's word to us, amplifying the passage. You may have questions already. Write them down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. And on this very difficult, controversial, painful issue, we pray that you will help us tonight to come to a point of clarity. What do you say? What do you think? And what do you require of us as followers of the Lord Jesus? So, Lord, speak to us. Teach us, we pray. In that passage, the Lord Jesus clearly points out that, uh, well, this is his response to a test They weren't really interested in the question and they were coming from the background of I could divorce my wife for any reason, whatever. That's how they understood the passage and we'll amplify that in the middle. Jesus' reply was not so much to answer it directly but rather to go back to, well, this is what marriage is about. It's about leaving that family, mum and dad, and starting a new family, cleaving to your wife and becoming one with her. It's a new family is being established And divorce is actually the rendering of that 
which has been established. So Jesus says in verse um, 8 that it was only divorces permitted, but it's not the ideal, but sometimes it's necessary. And he says in verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for a very serious reason, in this context it's except for sexual immorality, uh, then you're in fact setting it up for legal adultery. You're just making it easy. Divorce can lead to just simply adultery. Um, and Jesus says in this passage, well, not everybody can accept this. The ideal from Jesus' perspective is marriage is great, marriage is terrific, but marriage is for people, as we'll come to tonight, for, who need to get married. While it's ordained by God, it's not ordained for everybody. In fact, singleness is a very commendable lifestyle and the new testament is very strong on that and one and particularly 1 corinthians 7 which is a passage we will come to well divorce happens and so does marriage remarriage and in the old testament and so does polygamy often in the old testament they would not divorce their wife what they would do is take another wife which in exodus 21 leads to some very interesting principles which i hope to get to tonight there are four basic Christian views. There was a book written, Four Views on Marriage. And so I wonder if we took a survey tonight, which one are you? Which camp are you in? <clears throat> First camp is the most strict and the most limiting of all. And that one says um, there is no divorce. Under any circumstances at all, it's wrong. Position one. wonder if any of you are there. Um, some people in our church, not many... Um, one and a half fingers worth of people are there. Um, number two, now you can get divorce, but you cannot get remarried. Divorce because of whatever reasons, are very serious reasons, but under no circumstances can you get married again. You can get married once in life and that's it, done and dusted. And then some of those people would even argue, what if your wife or your partner dies? Can you get remarried? No. It's once off, one time only. Some people are in that view. <clears throat> Third view is, um, no, you can get divorced, and yes, you can get married, remarried, but only some people can get remarried. And that's if, for biblical reasons, like Jesus mentioned, sexual immorality, what we would say perhaps is adultery, um, or perhaps there's a second reason. Is there any more than that? I will argue tonight, I think there are more reasons than that. I think there is a third reason. In fact, just to preempt it, adultery, abandonment, and abuse, or neglect, or whatever word you want to use in the third category, are the big headings for grounds for legitimate biblical divorce. And then there is a fourth view, which is not my view, and nor do I think it's the biblical view, which, yeah, yes, you can get divorced, and yes, you can get remarried for whatever reason you like. She's getting too old. I need someone younger. Or whatever reason it is. Now, let me also say this at the, at the beginning. In the Old Testament, it was a man's world. It was pretty much he could divorce her, she couldn't divorce him. They were the good old days. Then we got to the New Testament. Where in the New Testament, she can divorce him. Roman law, Greek law, and by the influence of the New Testament uh, times, those cultures on it, uh, Jewish culture, it became also their view. The rabbis certainly had some diverse views. They fall generally into two camps. One is the very strict view. There's only one reason for divorce, and that would be adultery. That's it. Or some sort of sexual impropriety. 
Often in the Old Testament, adultery led to the death penalty. The other view was far more broader and general. They were the two general camps and the Pharisees came out of this second camp. Is it right for a man to divorce his wife for whatever reason? Traditionally, you may have heard this said before, that uh, if she burnt my toast in the morning, that I could divorce her. You could simply say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and you would be divorced. That's not exactly what the Bible teaches, but that was a cultural development that happened. Well, let's keep pushing forward. Divorce is certainly allowed in the Bible, but it is not required. It's not commanded. You can choose not to get divorce. It really must go on a person-by-person basis. If you do decide to head towards divorce, then there should be some sort of mandatory counselling and a waiting period, which is what we have in our society. In God's intention, marriage is always to be for life. And we'll come to some of those conclusions a little bit later. Um, Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is that he was calling people to follow him into a relationship with him and that relationship with him would have an impact and an influence on their relationship with others. Our relationship with him impacts our relationship with others. And Jesus was particularly emphasising that... um, It's not about outward performance. It's not simply attending church or doing the outward religious things. It's about an internal change of heart and character, change of attitude. That's what's being revealed. And as he works through the Sermon on the Mount, he points to these differences. Pastor Charlie has spoken over the last couple of weeks. It's not, you know, you've heard about murder. Well, Jesus says it's also about anger. What's on the inside? It's anger. Last week it was, you've heard about adultery, but it's also about what's in the heart. It's lust, what precedes it. He will go on to talk about oaths and vows and it's honesty coming out of your mouth truthfulness about wrongs not being retaliated being merciful towards others who have done the wrong thing to you or treating enemies and opponents in a loving caring way praying for them and blessing them or finally it's tonight this one is about faithfulness divorce how does following Jesus impact my relationship the closest of all human relationships What happens when it goes bad? What happens when something goes wrong? Well, there's a way forward. Jesus gives it to us. The scriptures give it to us. And he is the God of the second chance. Let's have a look at our second Bible reading, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And I would ask you to read this again. Take down your notes and have a look at it at home, particularly verses 1 to 4. This is the passage the Pharisees are referring to. And this says, this is... God speaking through Moses, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, that's every marriage. True for men, true for women. Would that be correct? Well, no need to agree. It is true. We're not perfect. We're imperfect. I may or may not tell you about a time in our life, uh, when things got really tough. She was really difficult to live with. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, displeasing, because he he finds something indecent, that's the key word, about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her out of his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, she gets remarried. The divorce enables remarriage. If she leaves the house, she becomes wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her as well, poor lady. 
and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house or if he dies or whatever, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. She's not defiled by the second marriage. She's defiled by the accusations in the certificate of divorce in the first case. I found something displeasing with her. I found something indecent in her that defiles her reputation. That's what it's referring to. Um, that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Don't bring sin upon um, the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. In other words, if you're going to divorce your wife, you better have a very good reason for it. And you're prepared to put it in writing. This is what I find to be irreparable in our relationship. And you put it in writing, which then protects her and enables her to be remarried and protects that second marriage against accusations or blood feuds from the other husband. So it's designed particularly to protect the woman, this certificate of divorce. Um, yeah. So it protected the woman. It's got to be for a very serious reason. This word indecent is quite vague. If you read the literature on it, you'll find nobody, in fact, you'll find the most honest Old Testament commentators coming down and saying it's absolutely impossible to be precise on what this word means. And I think that's intentional. I think the scriptures, I think God by his Holy Spirit has given us a word which is quite broad and not specific, but it's very serious. Quite literally, it means that something has been exposed after the marriage that was not known before the marriage and it's now been exposed and the husband, in this case, finds that to be shameful, finds it to be improper, finds it to be unacceptable. I can't go on. Whatever that reason happens to be. Jesus' statements, he will explain that in terms of sexual immorality, which we will come to. Interestingly too, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we are informed that if the husband makes a false accusation, if he claims something against the wife, but it's false, then the, and the certificate of divorce had to be uh, checked by two witnesses. If they found that to be false, then he was penalised financially and he had to pay her dad, her father, a sum of money. And then he was married to the girl that he had made the false accusations against for the rest of his life, he could not divorce her. I'm not sure what sort of relationship that would have been like, but that was like trying to say to the guy, if you're going to write a certificate of divorce, you better be clear and you better be honest. It's irreversible and there are penalties attached to it. So divorce is serious. It's not to be trivialised. It had to be legally transacted. Um, and over the centuries, the rabbis looking at this, who were always looking for loopholes in what God had laid down, they probed and sometimes invented what this word um, indecent meant in verse 1. He's, she's displeasing to me and I find something indecent in her. And they came up with a list. I want, want to share with you tonight some of that list. Um, for the guys tonight, I'm willing to give you a copy of this list. If you just email me, you could use this in your disputes with your lovely wife. Two broad things. Number one, some was very limited, so it was simply adultery or sexual immorality, but there is a second group. Indecent means that she can't have children. She's barren. 
Indecent means she's become a deaf mute. She can't hear and she can't speak. That's indecent. Or she's got epilepsy, tetanus, warts or leprosy. This is on the list. It could be, number four, a failure to perform domestic duties. Fellas, I don't know what it's like in your house, but here is a list of what is required for the ancient wife. Listen carefully. She has to grind flour daily, grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds and weave with wool. If she acquired a servant, the first servant could do the first three, grind flour, bake bread and wash clothes, but she still had to do the other seven, cook food, nurse, make them weave with wool. If she got a second servant, they would do the next bit, they could cook food, nurse the children, but she still had to make the beds and weave with wool. If you got a third servant, she had no duties to do. She could sit in the chair all day and not lift a finger. But if he found or considered her to be lazy, he could divorce her. Secondly, or fifthly, it went to the whole area of physical defects and blemishes. There's a loss of attractiveness. Um, I no longer feel romantically attracted to her. And they came up with all sorts of things. The shape of her head. If it was wedge shape, I check this out with Rhonda, I've examined her, don't you worry. <laughs> if it's shaped like a turnip, I don't know what that is, goes the other way. Shaped like a hammer, I think that would be like a mallet, you know, square. Or if it was flat at the back, I asked Rhonda, have you got a flat spot at the back of her head? She does. <laughs> Poor posture. Thinning hair on her face if she has no eyebrows, if she has one eyebrow, <laughs> or if she has bushy eyebrows, divorce her. If she's got a pug nose, if the nose is too big or if the nose is too little. Her eyes, if they're too high or too low, or if she's cross-eyed. If she has no eyelashes, if the eyes are different colours, or if she's got watery eyes, if her eyes are too big like a calf or too small like a goose, <laughs> if her ears are too little or if her ears are too big and they're floppy, <laughs> to her mouth, if she's got an overbite, an underbite, or missing teeth, you could divorce her. If she had a poor figure, I like this one, if she had a protruding navel, <laughs> you either have an innie or an outie, don't you? Well, if you've got an Audi, it's real for divorce. When it comes to her legs and her feet, if she's got bony ankles or bony knees, if she's bow-legged, or if she has wide feet, wider than a goose. But this is the best one of all, if she is ambidextrous, left and right-handed. They also had rules and numbers. If you would like those, I can give them to you later. I've told some, I think I told the pastoral team or the elders the other day, because I didn't think I'd be able to say it publicly, and I don't think I want to say it publicly. The number of times that you were to have sex, they had a list. And if you really want to know, then it depends on your occupation. If you want the details, come and see me later. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus said, for those reasons? No, don't be silly. You need to have some very serious reasons. Um, 
because Jesus is looking for people who are following him and who are concerned about developing relationships, not busting them up. Divorce certainly does happen in our world and it did happen in the ancient world. It is permitted, it's allowable, but only for very important reasons, significant reasons, not for selfish, sinful, silly reasons, not petty and childish reasons. And that made me then think of how many children would divorce their parents because they don't get their own way? A lot of us. When I was five years old, I packed my bags and I left home. I was sick of them. They wouldn't do what I wanted. You know what I did? I packed my bags and I walked around the block. And I thought that was a long time. Then I came home again. Have you ever done that? Maybe it's just a genetic thing, because I've had both my children do it, pack their bags and say, I'm out of here. It's like, see you later. It's childish. It's a child thinks like that. But that's how some people approach their marriage commitments. At the heart of marriage stands commitment, not romantic love. Commitment. Romantic love is the icing on the cake. Marriage is about covenant commitment, companion commitment. Marriage is tough. Marriage is not as long as love lasts. Marriage is as long as life lasts. Running out of romance is not a reason to run out of the marriage. Did you hear that? Work on the romance. There's a sociology term called praxis. And even the Eastern cultures, they practice this. In the Eastern cultures, not Western cultures, we wait till we fall romantically in love with somebody and, you know, the hormones are pumping and we are just strongly attracted to the other person and we have to marry them in the West, in the East, that's the West, in the East, it's, it's a range marriage. Some of them haven't even seen each other, haven't met each other, and they get married. But the difference is you take a cold pot of water and you put it on the stove. Then you turn the stove on. And over the years, it starts to warm up. It starts to boil. Eastern marriages are often much stronger than Western marriages because what do we do? We wait till it's boiling and we put it on the stove, but we don't turn the gas on. And then what happens? Just slowly cools down. And in Western cultures, our culture, that's what happens. Couples drift apart. They no longer love each other. Marriage is not about love. Marriage is about commitment. I'm committed to this person. And you can maintain the, the romance and the marriage, and I have some, maybe some suggestions for you tonight. Remember this too. Divorce is not simply uh, pen and ink on paper. Divorce is about taking a scalpel and cutting your heart. It hurts. It's painful. It's often not the best solution. Sometimes it is but not always. I need to say this as well. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. We all need to, and particularly people who have suffered from divorce or been divorced, they need to renew their relationship with God and with one another as best you can. That's what Jesus is asking us to do, a relationship with him which impacts our relationship with one another, especially a marriage partner. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 31, 32, it's just two verses. Um, and Jesus will say, point blank, but you put it in the context of which I've outlined for you now. It's been said by the rabbis, 
by the Pharisees, by others. Um, it's been said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce for any reason. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, something serious and strong, makes her the victim, the NIV says, makes her the victim of adultery, if she gets remarried, that is. And anyone who marries a divorced woman who's been divorced for a trivial, insignificant reason is in fact committing adultery. Does that make sense? Um. This certificate of divorce, this um, indecency that is in her is certainly something serious. The word is deliberately vague. I just want to show you the parallel between Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5. The word that is used is deliberately vague. It enables the divorced person to get remarried and it protects the future marriage. That's what it does. Jesus does exactly the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. The word that Jesus uses for except for sexual immorality, which is translated in various different ways, is actually a vague term, a very general term. The Greek word is pornia. From, you can see where we get our word pornography from. And it means a whole range of sexual misbehaviours. And Jesus is saying, except for those very serious indiscretions, that's the only reason for divorce that Jesus gives. For instance, and I don't want to dwell on any of these, fornication, adultery, prostitution, oral sex, homosexuality, bestiality, pornography, um, whatever and on. And that's with another person I'm talking about, not with your own partner. Is that the only reason that the New Testament gives for why a person can be divorced? No. No. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul introduces another concept, 1 Corinthians 7. You need to read the whole chapter, which is about relationships, and I don't have time to really digress too much into it, except I do want to point out to you, this won't be on the screen, um, the Apostle Paul says in verse 10, to the married I give this command, not me, but the Lord, this is his command, a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and her husband must not divorce his wife. When you read those three, two verses, verses 10 and 11, the words separate, unmarried and divorce all mean the same thing. In our world, husband and wife can separate. They're still married, but they live in different places. That's not what the word means here. The word the Apostle Paul uses is to separate means that you result in being unmarried, divorced. So you need to read that very carefully. But then he introduces this second reason. He says, to the rest I say, this is me, not the Lord. I can't quote Jesus on this because he didn't refer to it, is what he means. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So now you've got a mixed marriage, a Christian with a non-Christian. Can the Christian divorce the non-Christian? No. The Apostle Paul says very clearly. Then he goes on to amplify um, that the unbeliever in that relationship with a believer is in a privileged spiritual position and that may in fact lead to 
some spiritual significance. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, if the unbeliever says, I want a divorce, I want out. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The Christian brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Second reason, New Testament. These are the two reasons that most evangelical what's the word? Protestants give for divorce. Adultery, sexual immorality and desertion. Where a mixed marriage uh, unbeliever leaves the marriage, then the Christian is not bound by the marriage covenant anymore, but the divorce leads to they're unable to, in fact, get remarried. Is there any other reason in the scriptures? No. They are the only reasons the Bible gives for why a person could get divorced. But there are other illusions. There are other implications um, and I've called this one neglect. I'm not sure what you would think about this one. I don't think I gave you this reference, did I? It's Exodus 21, um, and I think it's verses 10 and 11. It's in the context of talking about slaves and servants and relationships in ancient Israel. And <clears throat> uh, it's not that, it's... Exodus 21 and it's down to verse, I don't know where it is, 10 and 11. Didn't I say that? Yes. Or maybe if I read 10 and 11 and not the other words, it'd be all right. <clears throat> verse 10. Um, if he marries another woman, so here is a guy, here is a, a slave owner. He's married a woman who is a slave, whether she's born in the family or whatever, but he marries her and so the slave now has become his wife but he's not happy with her well then he has the option verse 10 if he marries another woman so he's got one slave wife and now he's going to get another one uh, if he marries another woman he must not deprive the first one of her food clothing and marital rights if he does not provide her with these three things she is to go free she didn't get divorced she's set free without any payment she doesn't have to pay She's just set free. The implication is, the implication, that his marriage covenant means that he is to provide food, clothing and affection to the first wife as well. So the rabbis, or some of the rabbis would argue that, so therefore that outlines for us, what if he doesn't do that? Well, that becomes grounds likewise for divorce. It's called neglect. If he's not providing financial, suitably financially, what about if he's, in, he's a drug addict or what if there's domestic violence or what if there's psychological issues and dysfunction and all of those other sorts of things come into this area of neglect where he is breaking his vows, his marriage covenant to love, and to look after and to cherish and to provide and so on. So if that's the case, and that's my view, then there are those three grounds for divorce in the scriptures alluded to. Sexual immorality of, of vast sorts, certainly adultery but, and others. Desertion by an unbeliever, but also neglect or abuse. That could lead to divorce. It doesn't have to. 
Divorce should try to be avoided. Can you fix this? Can you fix that? Can you forgive and move on from this? That's the way forward. And you've got to take it on a case-by-case basis. What happens if a person says, I'm in a marriage and I'm not happy. I loathe the person I am married to. Can I get out? Well, the answer is yes, but should you? You need to work through why are you in that marriage? Why do you think and feel that way about that person? And are there other things that you could possibly change? Somebody once came to Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, and said to him, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? Because he was often overseas in a way, and she raised the kids by herself. And she said, honestly, in that interview, no, I've never thought about divorcing him. Murder several times, but never divorce. So I think divorce is off the table. In my marriage with Rhonda, divorce is not in our vocabulary. Murder still is in our vocabulary, but divorce is not. So divorce is allowed, but it's not required. There should be mandatory counselling and a waiting period and so on, and it should try to be fixed. But sometimes it can't be. Now listen to this. Here's the balance of it. It's hard to stay in a marriage that's gone pear-shaped and difficult but it's potentially better if you do, particularly if there can be change. But if there is no change, then to stay in that marriage could be misery on earth. You've got to work it out, case by case basis. And this is certainly true. It is harmful and damaging to divorce, to leave. Regardless of whatever's going on, it's harmful and damaging, but sometimes it's necessary. I hope you never have to make that sort of a choice, whether it's better to go or better to stay, it's tough. But whatever it is, don't put yourself in harm's way. Don't stay if you're being harmed. But understand that leaving is going to be harmful. So you get to weigh up which is the less painful, which is the less hurtful. And for us who are on the outside, who are not in the process of divorce, but friends or other loved ones are, then we need to demonstrate grace, we need to be listening, we need to try to understand, we need to have empathy. You may disagree with them, but you still need to be supportive of them. I want to finish by saying this. If you are married, what practical things can you do now to strengthen your marriage and protect it against boredom and divorce? Or, flip side of that question... If you're married and the marriage has grown tired and predictable and it's not very exciting, there's lots of arguing and fighting and disappointment, what can you do? Well, here are some suggestions. And if that describes you in any way, then either come and talk to us or please talk to somebody. Number one, it's communication. Communicate with your spouse. Cast aside any fantasies you've got in your brain your mind, which is fed by Hollywood and by romantic novels. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage and everybody except Rhonda will have to believe that there's no such thing as a perfect husband. We are imperfect. Talk openly with one another. Be very honest and tell the person you're not happy or you're upset or the marriage is bland and you want something more. You're committed to the relationship, but it's got to change. Have the conversation. Number two, learn some new skills. Seek help. Whether it's through books, I'm a bibliophile, I love books. 
There's an author I have discovered, there are a thousand authors on marriage, but there's a guy called Mark Gungor. Some of you all have heard of him and know him. He's got a DVD series called Out, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. If you haven't seen it, borrow it and watch it. He's also written a book. It's called 40 Beads. It's really written by an, an author, a lady, whom he then co-authored it within a second edition and put his name on it as well, 40 Beads. If you're having trouble in your relationships, I commend that book to you. See a counsellor, whether it's a friend or a pastor or a professional. Attend courses and seminars. Learn some skills in your marriage. Number three, be God-centred. Establish or re-establish what I call the family altar. We don't call it that anymore. <clears throat> Pray with your wife, your husband. Attend church weekly. Get into a connect group or an accountability group. Practice the spiritual disciplines. You would have heard this said, and it's not true. There are 50% 50, 50 of non-Christian marriages end in divorce and 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. You heard that? 50-50. It's not correct. It's based upon poor data collection and poor analysis. The correct thing to say is, for those who are born-again Bible-believing Christians, not nominal church-attending Christians only, for evangelical Christians, it's more likely to be 70-75%, three and four, who are still married and happily married. And in fact, 80 to 90% of that 75% are happily married. There are certainly evangelical families and uh, marriages that they're not happy, they've got issues. And at some point, you will have issues. The first seven years of our marriage were perfect. I would pout and sulk and Rhonda would give in and I got my way, I was happy, she was happy that I wasn't sulking and pouting anymore. After seven years, I grew up. It's been hell on earth since. That's not true. Why would you say that? We have a very strong, very close relationship, but there are still times when she is wrong. That's true. I'm not sure the reverse is true, but I assume it is. Oh, you'd say publicly, would you? Yeah. <laughs> Weekly church attendance, praying together and being in a connect group like that actually increases the chances of your marriage surviving and decreases the chances of divorce. They're, that's the statistics, that's the facts from 2014. And next, be consistent. Communicate, learn some skills, be God-centred in your relationship and be consistent. Be the very person Jesus wants you to be. Be the person. Not find the right person, be the right person in your relationship. So watch the way you speak and your reactions. Pay attention to the little details. We just drift otherwise. Discover what your partner's love language is, is and work at it every day. It's not rocket science, but it is hard work. It's about commitment, working at it, and it's certainly worthwhile. I'm going to pray... While I'm praying, you might think of a question. If you've got a question, shoot your hand up. If not, then uh, the band will come. So we'll pray. If you guys just wait and we'll see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, marriage is your idea and it's a gift to us as a people. You also give people the gift of remaining single. So Lord, whether married or single, help us to be fully devoted to you. 
passionate in following you and our relationship with you, let that affect our relationships with others. And especially in tonight's context, Lord, especially in our marriages. Help us to be real. Help us to be consistent. Help us to be godly, pleasing to you. And we pray for the people who are in a tough time, who are going through marriage difficulties. Lord, provide good support. Provide wisdom. But provide most of all clear thinking, biblical thinking, that they can work on and hopefully save their marriage. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.